And what we're going to do right now is, is preach one sermon um, on these two texts with two different preachers, okay? So I'm going to preach on the church gathered from Hebrews 10, and then in a few minutes, Ryan's going to come preach on the church scattered. Now, these won't both be 45-minute sermons, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, we are going to seek to be efficient and helpful. After our uh, sermon, we're going to actually have a time where we sit down together and do a Q&A to talk about how we're going to do this in a real practical way in 2018. So it's, it's a unique time, but, but still, as we just prayed, we, we ask God to illumine his word, to minister to us through his word, and we do not want to give a vision for our church that is not flowing straight out of God's word. And so that's why right now what we want to do is we want to look at these texts and let God give us as a body his vision for who we need to be in 2018. So we're going to look at Hebrews 10 in a few minutes. You can, you can open your Bible there right now if you want. And as you do that, I want to ask if anyone here has seen the movie Rudy. Anyone here seen the movie Rudy? Okay, so I think almost every guy's hand in the room went up there. Okay, so Rudy, according to my wife, is a wonderful object lesson in idolatry. Um, but this sermon's not on idolatry, so we'll do that another time. But, uh, but you know, Rudy is a guy who, since he's a little kid, is just passionate for which school? Notre Dame, right? He is passionate about Notre Dame football. From the time he's a little kid, when, he, when he's just a little kid, he's watching it with his dad, he's playing with his brothers, and, and just watching Notre Dame play football was a glorious thing. <laughs> for little Rudy. He, he, he loved it. It was just his, his burning passion. He, and all he wanted was to, was to go and be at a game. And, and one day he got to go to a game, and, and he called back to his dad and said, you got to be here. It's just it's amazing. It's glorious. And so actually at the game, not on the TV, it's, it's even more glorious. And so the, the, the movie Rudy just, just follows this kid as he grows up and goes into college as he seeks to be a Notre Dame football player. Now, that's like me seeking to be a Notre Dame football player uh, in terms of my stature, my size. My, he's a short, little, ruddy guy who had no chance to, to, to play with those guys, but he was persistent. And so, so he's watching these games, and it's, and it's glorious. And he's at the games, it's even more glorious. Then he gets a chance to be essentially a janitor for the team. He's like, sign me up right now. Anything I can do to get closer to this team. And, and, and there's even, an even greater excitement about that. And then he gets to actually be part of the boosters. I think he sneaks in, really. And he gets to paint their helmets, paint, paint the gold Notre Dame helmets. And it's just awesome. He's so excited. that you know, There's increasing levels of excitement throughout the movie. And finally, through hard work, perseverance, persistence, he gets to wear the Notre Dame jersey He's on the team. He's made the team. He gets to wear the jersey, dress for the game. And at the end of the movie, he actually gets put in the game. He makes a tackle. And it's awesome. Everyone loves that movie that, that loves sports dramas, right? And so um, Rudy is a lesson in, in the glory of participation, the, the glory of participation. Because it's one thing just to sit back and watch the game. It's one thing just to, just to go and be at the game. It's, it's, it's even one thing just to, to go and be on the team but, uh, or to be a janitor at the stadium be a booster. But once you're on the team, wearing the jersey, on the field, making a play, even though in, in reality that was probably a very insignificant play for Rudy, he goes, I'm part of something. I'm part of this, this thing that, I, that I've loved, and, and, and the glory of it for him was, that's why we say it's really idolatry, right? Because it's just football. But what I want you to see is 
the excitement that grows to that movie, this, this is why we love it, is because, because he gets to the point where he actually gets to be part of the team. Gets where he gets to participate in what is going on. He's not just sitting and watching. He's not just a spectator. He's not just on the sidelines. He's part of the team playing the game. And that's what I want us to, to, to be called to this morning from Hebrews 10, is, is to be part of what's going on here, here at Redeemer Church. Part of what's going, going on in, in the world is God works through his local church. And so I want us to make two observations from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. We're going we're gonna to read through this text as we go. But I just want to make two observations this morning from Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Uh, 24 and 25 is kind of where we're going to focus at the end, but I want to look at the whole thing. 19 25, two observations. Number one, the glory of the gathered church. The glory of the gathered church. I'm going to make a statement and ask you to think about it as I, as I say it and, and decide, is this, is this true? Is this real? Do I believe that? This, this is the statement. There is nothing more glorious on this earth than the gathering of God's people. There's nothing more glorious on this earth than the gathering of God's people coming together like we are right now. What, 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 what I'm saying is what's happening right now is, is more glorious than anything else in all the earth. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe that's true. And I believe it's true because of who God is and who we are and who Jesus is. From a mere human perspective, that might not look true. This does not seem all that glorious from a worldly perspective, from a human perspective, but with the eyes of faith, when you understand who God is and when you understand who you are and you understand who Jesus is, then this, all of a sudden, with the eyes of faith, you realize this is glorious. There's nothing more glorious than this. Think about it. Who, who is God? He is our creator. He is the, the eternal, one true God. He is holy and separate and righteous and mighty and awesome. And, and in his holiness, he is removed from anything unholy. And, and that's who we are. That, that's who we are. We are unholy Creatures. We are creatures who rebelled against our Creator. We are those who rejected the goodness of our God. We are those who wanted to be our own gods and pursued destruction, pursued death, pursued our own way, and deserve wrath. A holy, loving, transcendent God and unholy creatures who rejected Him. That, that, that's who He is. That's who we are. And then who is Jesus? Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came down to earth, who took on our flesh, who became one of us, fully man, who lived the perfect life that we didn't live, who died a sacrificial death that we deserve to die, who rose again from death, conquering sin, conquering hell, conquering death, who sits at the right hand of God, who is coming again, all to be our Savior so that unholy people could come to a holy God. Look at how Hebrews 10 says this. Look down at verse, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is that saying? It's saying God used to be separate from you because God is holy and you are not. But through Christ, through his body being torn open for you, him experiencing the wrath of God for you, through his priesthood, unholy people like you and me get to come into the presence of the holy God. That's what's going on right now. That's that's what's happening right now, and it's glorious. The the reason that our gathering is the most glorious thing on the earth is because the gospel is the most glorious thing on the earth. And every time we gather, we are a public declaration of the gospel. When we come together, just, just being here through faith is saying we believe that God is holy and we are not, but that through Christ we can come into his presence through his blood and worship our God. We declare the gospel by being here, and so our gathering together is glorious. The second observation I want to make is, is the goal of our gathering. So, so we see the glory of, our, of the gathering. We see the glory of the church gathered, but what is the goal of the church gathered? The goal of the church gathered is to help us live in light of our hope. The goal of gathering together is to help you and me live in light of our hope. Look down at the text with me. Look, look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For you who promised is faithful. And then, and then skip down to the very end of, in verse 25, that very last phrase, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So 23, let us hold, hold fast the confession of our hope. 25, the day is drawing near. What is this talking about? It's talking about the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back. Jesus one day is going to appear, and he's saying every day we get closer to that. The day is getting closer. It could be tomorrow. It could be the next day. Jesus is returning, and we need help to live in light of that hope. We need to live in light of it. Because he's coming back, what's going to happen when he comes? He's going to save the world. He's going to save the church. I'm sorry. He's going to save the church. He's going to judge the world. That's what that day is about. He's going to save his people who he's called out of the world by his grace. He's going to judge the world. And so, and so why do we need to gather then? What, what do we mean real specifically by the goal of gathering together? We, we mean that we need persevering faith because he's going to save us. So, so, so we need to continue to believe. But we also need radical love because there is a world that will be judged on that day. And I want you to see this in the text. Look at what we didn't read. It says, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And then let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so because he's coming back, we need We need faith that's unwavering. We need to persevere in faith. And we need radical love for those around us because they're going to be judged if they don't come to him. And we need to come here week after week after week to gather together because God's design is that we would gain persevering faith and radical love from one another. God's design is that this would happen as we minister to one another. Look what he says. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So so I come to church, 
and, and, I, and I need to be thinking, how can I stir up Mike and Leah Diggs to live a life of radical love? That, that should be the question on my mind. And, and, and that applies for all of us as we think about one another. How can I stir them up today? How can I help them live a life of radical love and good works for others? How can I call them to that? And then we also need to realize that, that, that we need to encourage each other, that the day is drawing near. We are so prone to doubt and discouragement and to tunnel vision, so we call each other and say, Joey, Jesus is coming back. Live in light of it. Live in light of it. And so we call each other to that. I want to say one thing and, one, and then one idea and then, and then let Ryan uh, come up for the church scattered. That, that is that I think everyone here, when, when we come to church, we, we want to be ministered to. You're saying, yes, I, I, I want to be stirred up in love. I, I, want, I want to be strengthened in my faith. I think we all want that. But the, the problem is that if we all come wanting that for ourselves, and not ready to give that to each other, then no one's going to be encouraged. No one's going to be stirred up. No one's going to be strengthened. If we're all coming with a selfish mentality that I want to be stirred up, I want to be strengthened. But if we each come on Sunday mornings ready to stir each other up, ready to encourage each other with a mindset that's others-oriented, then what's going to happen? You will be stirred up. You will be encouraged. It won't happen if we come selfishly oriented, but if we come others oriented, we come looking to participate in one another's lives, then we will all be encouraged. We will, we will be fed, we will be filled, we will be strengthened, we will be, our, our fellowship will be sweet, and we will be equipped to live in light of our hope. That's the design of corporate worship. And so it's glorious because we're coming to the holy God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and there's a goal. The goal is to help us live in light of the hope that we have that he's coming back. We live in the already and not yet. He's coming back. Let's, let's live faithfully. And so one, just one application, we'll talk about nuts and bolts later, but one application that I want to give you today is participate. Participate in corporate worship. Don't just come and sit and get and then get out, right? Don't, don't just come and be here and take in. Don't, don't just come and enjoy it in your own bubble as if your seat is just your own space that no one else comes into. Don't, don't come selfishly, but participate in the work of worship. Participate in drawing near to the glorious God with each other, calling each other to love and good works, encouraging each other that the day is drawing near. We're going to talk more about how to do that later, but right now, I want to ask you to make a commitment for 2018, starting now, really, but a commitment to participate in, in the goals of worship. I think if there's anything about our church, we, 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 we probably would gravitate towards, we want to participate in the glory of worship, but we are not as bent on participating in the goals of worship. And so let's grow this year in participating in the goals of worship to come others-oriented, to stir each other up toward radical love and faith in Christ's return. And so I'm going to close there and let Ryan come and, and then move from the church gathered when we are here to the church scattered when we leave. So we'll make the handoff, no, football reference there. When Phil 
and I and Ben started talking about our 2018 Vision Sunday, I did not envision it starting with the Moody Rudy. Moody Rudy. I, I didn't. I didn't. But I will say, I'm going to run with that. All right, I'm going to run with it. Because this is what I want to ask you. Um, if you have a favorite football team, raise your hand. If you have a favorite football team, okay, good deal. Put your hands down. If you don't have a favorite football team, then just pretend that you do and just pick out whatever that one would be. And I want to, I want to, I want to ask you about this. If, if you're the coach of your favorite football team and you're playing in the biggest game of the year and the opposing team kicks the ball off to your team and your kick returner takes the ball and begins to run with it and the blocking was just perfect and the guy with the ball runs all the way across midfield, zigs and zags and zigs and zags and finds his way to the 10, the 5, the 4, the 3 and then he gets tripped out at the one-yard line. And the ball is placed at the one-yard line. And here you are, the coach, and so you, you have this great offense. They are just this huge offensive line, uh, this excellent quarterback, this massive muscle-bound running back that runs a 4-2-40, and you send in the play. And they huddle up. And the play clock winds down, and they're still in the huddle. Five, four, three, two, one. Yellow flag comes out. Referee calls what? Delay of game. Delay of game. Five-yard penalty. And so you send in the play again, and the team huddles up, and the play clock begins to run down. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, yellow flag. What's the call? Delay of game. And that happens time and time and time again until you're pushed back all the way to the 50-yard line. And as the coach, you're on the sidelines thinking what? Yeah, yeah. And finally, as a coach, you're going to say, I've got to get those guys off the field. And I've got to put in some guys who are going to actually, what? Run the play. Got to run the play. And this is the thing, is that as we gather together, and we're in a holy huddle, and we, we're, we're excited about everything that's going on, at some point, we say break, and we run the play. But if we don't run the play, it doesn't matter how good the huddle is. It doesn't matter how good the practices have been. It doesn't matter how good any of that stuff is because if you don't run the play, you're not functioning in the purpose that a football team is supposed to function. Okay, so, so make the transition over with me to the church. Okay, we gather. We're in a huddle. That's where we are right now. But today, about 12.30 or 1 o'clock or whatever time it is, we got to say break. And then we got to go do what? Got to go run the play. We run the play essentially Monday through Saturday. 
Now listen, we could have chosen a, chosen a number of different texts to talk about running the play and about scattering in order to go run the play, but we chose, landed on Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking to multitudes of people, but in Matthew chapter 5 at the very beginning, it says that his disciples came near to him. And so he's teaching his disciples, those who are following after him and want to hear what he has to say. And he goes through what we call the Beatitudes. And then beginning in verse 13, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is not going to be. It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it underneath a basket. But on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what we see Jesus doing here is bringing a metaphor for what it means to scatter. Okay, so if you're looking down at the passage what, we, what we're really thinking in, in terms right here in a few moments, we're going to see the metaphor and the meaning and then the mandate that comes in, okay? So the metaphors. It gives two, salt and light. Now, we have to think in terms of first century and how salt was used in the first century, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, salt has been being used ever, you know, from thousands of years ago, and often it is really for two major purposes, okay? It makes food taste better, and it makes food last longer, okay? So it improves food, and it preserves food. That's what salt does. And so Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And when they're hearing that, oh, okay, we know salt improves food and salt uh, preserves food. And then he says, you're the light of the world. What does light do? Light did then what it does now. Light, when it shines and it's set out, it reveals reality. It reveals truth. And not only that, it rescues people from darkness. It rescues people from the chaos and the confusion of darkness. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in the dark in a room that you were not super familiar with? Man, you ever been in like a, a hotel room and you know how dark it can be in there, and you've got to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and it's pitch black dark, and they have put furniture in places where you didn't think that they were going to put furniture, all right? You understand chaos and confusion. You understand the, the bumping of the toe or the hitting of the hip. You, you understand that. When there's light, when there's even just a little bit of light, it removes the chaos, it removes the confusion. And so salt... 
Man, it makes food taste better and it makes food last longer. And light, it, it just reveals reality and it rescues from chaos and confusion. And Jesus offers a bit of a, of, of a statement about both salt and light that is very important because this is what he's really driving at. He says, you know, if, if salt doesn't function the way that salt should function, it's good for nothing. And then he said, people don't light a lamp and then go take a basket and put it over that lamp because it would make that lamp pointless. It would make that lamp meaningless. It would make that lamp purposeless. Okay, that's the metaphor. And here's the meaning. Christ has saved us to function as good salt and shining lights to the people in our world who need Jesus. Christ has saved us to function as good salt and shining lights to the people in our world who need Jesus. Here is the mandate, all right? The, the thing about salt and light is that salt has to be spread on food for it to work. And light has to be spread on people for them to see. And so this is the mandate. We have to go to people who need Jesus. And then once we go, we have to be with people who need Jesus. When you spread salt on a piece of food, that salt goes to the food and it stays on the food. And when you shine light with a lamp into a room, that light spreads throughout the room and it stays in the room. And so we need to go to people who need Jesus. We need to stay with people who need Jesus. And, and get this, this is the salt portion. We need to improve their lives and preserve their souls. So, Jesus frames this teaching right after the Beatitudes and right before all of these commands about what it really means to live a life of discipleship. So you, you ask, well, how, how can we really be salt? I mean, that's a wonderful metaphor, and that's great, but how can we be salt? How can we function as salt? And church, I want to tell you first, you've got to get your heart right. You've got to get your life right, your mind right. And so Jesus would say, this is how you're salt. You're poor in spirit. 
You're humble before God and others. You mourn over your sin and how you grieve God in your sin. And then you're meek. You have this this humility that is couched in Christ's strength and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want the righteousness of Christ not just applied to you positionally, but you want it applied to you practically so that you walk like Christ and you talk like Christ. And when people see you and they're around you, you're like, there is something different about that person. And then you make peace with people and you're patient with people and you persevere even in the midst of persecution, as he says in verses 11 and 12. And then once you do that, if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and you're a person who doesn't hold grudges, you're a person who exercises patience, You're not a religious hypocrite where you have all of this lofty spiritual language but nothing truly spiritual about your life. No, you're not that kind of person. You you actually love people. You don't take revenge when people get angry with you and do bad things to you. No, you persevere in love and good works and you do live by the golden rule that you love God and you love people as yourself. That's how you're salt. That's how you function as salt in this world and then as light. Here's the mandate under light. Reveal truth to people who need Jesus and rescue them from chaos and confusion. Reveal truth to people who need Jesus and rescue them from their chaos and confusion. This is why we have to be thoroughly and innately gospel people. We we just, we believe that Jesus came to earth, that He lived perfectly, that He died substitutionarily on our behalf, that He rose from the dead on the third day, that He ascended into heaven, that He's going to return one day on this white horse and on this white horse he's going to call all those who have trusted in him to himself and they're going to become like him and those who have not trusted him are going to go to hell because they didn't believe in him and and he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth and all those who put their faith in him will worship him in holiness forever and ever we've got to believe that and we've got to reveal that truth no matter how radical it sounds to people of this earth we've got to reveal that truth to people so they can be saved And then, that will rescue them from the chaos and confusion of their lives. Listen, I know that when we read the media and we look on all the social networking sites, people act like they're experts on everything and that they've got life figured out. And if everybody would just come come around to the way that they think and all of that. But listen, men and women and boys and girls go to bed every night in chaos and confusion. We we just got to know that. And we, who've been rescued by the love of Christ, we know the truth. We believe the truth. We're settled in it. We have peace. We have grace. We have love. We have joy. And we have the opportunity to usher uh, usher into their lives the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love of Jesus. And church, let's not let the negative part, when I say negative, I mean the warning part of this mandate slide before we move on. And that is this. 
if you're not functioning as good salt and shining light, your presence here on earth is essentially pointless. And that's just a summary of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you have lost your meaning in life. You have lost your purpose in life. You have lost your mission that I have given to you from my word if you are not functioning as a person who improves the lives of people who need Jesus and preserves the souls of people who need Jesus and reveals the truth about Jesus and who rescues them from the chaos of their lives. If you have organized your life in such a way that you're not improving their lives and ministering to their souls, then your life itself has become pointless. Why are you here? And so, church, this is the final thing I want to say. You and I must position our lives in places where people who need Jesus will experience our saltiness and feel the warmth of our light. We need to position ourselves in places where people who need Jesus will experience our saltiness and feel the warmth of our light. And if we don't, our presence here is pointless.